What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ladies Let's Talk About Sex podcast. I'm your host, Felicia, and I'm a lady talking about sex. And this week, we have a very interesting episode. We actually have another fellow podcaster, and we're actually going to be talking about their podcast, A Hateful Homicide. Now, this is something that we've never really done before, but I'm really, really interested. For people who don't know, I am like a crime junkie, even though it gives me nightmares, but I love just like true crime and talking about that kind of stuff. But Mallory's podcast, A Hateful Homicide, actually gives true crime another dimension. So Mallory, would you like to introduce yourself? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Mallory Jenna Robinson. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I live in LA. I started A Hateful Homicide on Transgender Day of Visibility, which is March 31st. Um, And I started it with the first episode covering the murder of Amanda Milan. A Hateful Homicide is a true crime podcast. It gives you that very dateline, 48 hours feel like it's gonna so the way I break it down is into so many different components um, to really try to make sure that I'm providing different levels of interest for the audience but the ultimate goal is to make sure that audience is learning about what is happening to the transgender community I identify as an Afro-Caribbean trans woman and what piqued my interest because I'm very much like you I'm, I'm a true crime junkie and I kept noticing, I was like, there's nothing really on television. There's nothing really in podcasts that talks about like specifically like transgender murders. And I really wanted to do something that focused on that. Not only because I love true crime, but also because of the fact that, you know, I just thought that it would be such a great way again to raise awareness. And so that's what I've been doing. We're going into our sixth episode this Saturday. A Hateful Homicide airs on Saturdays, 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And I mean, like I said, it is just such a great array. We cover transgender women, transgender men, gender non-binary. And we also cover cases not just in the United States, but also abroad. And the show typically goes for about 40 to 45 minutes each episode. So it gives you just enough time if you're in some traffic or if you're you know, just wanting to unwind for the evening or just kind of get like a little suspenseful, uh, excuse me, suspenseful Saturday started, then this is your podcast, A Hateful Homicide. So for people who aren't super aware of like the really, really staggering statistics within the trans community and how hate crimes are at an all-time high for trans folks, um, why did you feel it was important to start this podcast and show those intersections because I feel like when we're looking at like any sort of true crime documentary or like murder it's always these like white families and one of the parents goes AWOL and it's very like surface level nobody really talks about like mental health issues but also you know how society like seriously is just like still so rejected towards the trans community. Um, It's really never this like multifaceted. So why was that important? And like, why did you choose podcasting? You know, it it is very true. I realized that very early on. And 
it was going to be a challenge because I knew that going into true crime and loving it and viewing it as much as I have over the, the years, it has always been very cisgendered. Um, for those who don't, do not know what cisgendered means, you know, that means if you were assigned um, your sex at birth, then you still identify as that as an adult. And so for myself, I'm transgender. I transitioned from my assigned sex at birth. And so a lot of true crime cases, like you said, are very cis hetero families, uh, you know, wife goes missing, you know, and so that is what the typical norm is. And while those stories are very valid as well, why is it that like someone like myself, who is a black trans woman, if I was murdered, why doesn't my case garner enough attention? And it's just really heartbreaking. And so for me, I needed to make sure that I uplifted my community. So many times I've interviewed before and they've asked me the same question. And I tell them, these individuals that I'm covering, they were on this earth and they're no longer here. I can share my story because I'm still here, but these individuals are not. And it's only because of who they were. And they, they were here, they existed. And so I want to give a voice for those who are no longer here. And that's what I'm doing by in the form of podcasting. I'm giving you different layers. I'm taking you into the day of the crime. I'm doing a storytelling portion. Um, that's the initial kind of 10, 15 minutes. And then I go into victimology. So I discuss, you know, who, sh- who the victim is, who the victim was to the family, to the friends, to the community. And then I also go into kind of like a recap and also why that particular case interested me and how it relates to me in some form or fashion. And that's how I typically go through each of my episodes. And so um, we did receive our first um, comment and review, excuse me, and that review said that, you know, this was a much needed podcast. And thank you for sharing this and for making this, uh, you know, necessary. And that just continues to um, touch my heart to know that, you know, it is at least inspiring someone. It's raising awareness. It's impacting individuals in the right way. Um, this This is exactly what I wanted. And this is exactly what I would love to continue to see. So because you mentioned earlier that you you do identify as trans, how has your personal journey kind of coincided with like all of the things that you're learning um, about homicides within the trans community? Like, how does that affect you? Because it's so close to home and it's still prevalent. It's not something of the past. Yes, you know, I've thought about that a lot. I thought about how it has been such a heartbreaking realization that there are a lot of transgender individuals, especially Black trans women who have been murdered for years. And a lot of times it goes undocumented because these individuals are misgendered in the media. Um, they are often dead named, which means that they're um, in the media are using is using their old name and not the name that they prefer. So a lot of these cases get very swept under the rug, especially because it's a queer or LGBTQ plus case. So then again, that takes away from it. So it it really hits home because it makes me realize like this could happen to me. And in my in, in my episodes, I provide audio clips, Felicia, of the different, you know, parts of the of the case. 
So you may hear from the perpetrator. You may hear from the victim's family. You may hear from the victim. You never know what little bit of audio clip began to kind of tie in that realization that this really did happen. And um, it does get really real and it does get really personal because it's just, again, a reality. But it makes me also more aware and conscientious of my surroundings and making sure that I'm being as safe as possible because my goal is, is to continue to be around, to, to, to continue to see more seasons of a hateful homicide and which on a, on a, on the same side, it's a horrible thing because there shouldn't be any homicides to, to cover, but unfortunately there's so many and I want to be able to get all of these victim stories out here one victim at a time and, um, and just let people know that these people existed and they are no longer here because of, individuals who decided to commit a hateful homicide. And something that you said that was really interesting, that's kind of getting me to think a little bit is the media uses some trans folks dead name, because that's probably Mm -hmm. it, it was, it's most likely the, like the name that's on any sort of piece of identification, if they hadn't had the chance to make that switch yet, or maybe they're in the process of transitioning And Mm -hmm. how do you think for people who maybe don't understand like what a dead name is um, and maybe don't know any trans folks in in their life, you know, Um, because that's something that a lot of people are either not open to or it's not available. They're not welcome in that community. So people aren't exposed to what it's like for someone to go through a transition. How does a dead name kind of I don't know if overshadow is the right word, but essentially like distract from the real issue or like essentially like ostracize this person from their community because folks may not know their dead name if they're, you know, through the process of transitioning. Like how does the dead name affect um, kind of the media coverage and the homicide process, if that makes sense? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it makes a huge difference. Um, it makes a difference on how um, audience receives the, the case. Typically, um, I've done a lot of studies and typically people respond more to between um, victims who are between the ages of 15 to 32. Um, and they typically are cis hetero women. So these cases are going to a- automatically like pique people's interest. Missing woman, especially like someone on the right side of the tracks, automatically. <sighs> then when you take into the fact of someone who is transgendered, who has now been misgendered and dead named. So now they're looking at this individual, especially if it's a trans woman, let's say a black trans woman. Well, they're now only seeing dead black man dead black queer man who dressed up and that's how they kind of label it they'll say things like you know drag queen cross-dresser they'll use all these derogatory terms and then also one of the things that the media will do as well especially if the victim and and, and as the cases do cover um you know sex workers oftentimes there will be a blaming of the victim within the media coverage. So not only are they being dead and misgendered, but then they're also being blamed, well, if they weren't doing sex work, if they weren't, you know, they had disclosed their gender identity. So there is a lot of blaming that goes into it. So then that takes away the, the audience interest because when 
the victim is blameless, quote unquote, people are more like empathetic and sympathetic. Like, oh my gosh, you know, but when the media portrays it, it's like, well, you know, well, they kind of did it, brought it on themselves. And it's like, okay, next story. And that's often what happens. And so that's how these cases continue to get swept under the rug and, and the audience isn't engaged. But if we, t- if we twisted that, and that's why I wanted to bring in a hateful homicide, if we actually covered the victims as who they were, as women, men, gender non-binary, however they identified and or expressed, and if we focus on that piece and see them as people and not as a dead name or misgendered or a statistics, then we can start to humanize and normalize this type of victimology. And I'm hoping to see an increase in audience wanting to know more about these victims, because that's how we're going to continue to, to get more attention and more notoriety by decreasing debt naming, misgendering, and blaming the trans victim. And so that's why it's so important with media on how they cover the case initially, because that's going to determine how these cases um, really get national attention. And within A Hateful Homicide, Felicia, uh, actually there's two um, episodes, The Murder of Angie Zapata, um, which was the first case in um, in the United States to actually, the, the suspect was arrested and convicted for a hate crime. And this was in 2009. And then the next case uh, was the one that's coming up this Saturday. And um, I won't tell too much about that for those who um, would want to like know more by listening. But let's just say that that case is going to be very pivotal too in hate hate crimes and how that has started to become a thing, especially for trans victims getting justice for the fact that their perpetrators are being charged and convicted of hate crimes. And so it's good to see that there are some cases that do highlight that as well, to show that justice can be served for the community, especially if the media covers it right. And when you look at the cases that I've covered, these two in particularly, um, especially the Angie Zapata case, um, because of where that victim lived, that community was much more liberal and open-minded. So the media was very gender affirming. They used she, her, hers. Angie's family was very supportive as well. So they affirmed her identity after she, uh, after she died, after she was murdered. So this also helped audience see her as a woman. And in this case, garnered a lot of attention in 2008 when she was first murdered. And then in 2009, when the trial was ultimately um, finalized. And so again, if the media covers it in that light, if we would see more cases covered like Angie Zapata's, then we would hear more. I think I think you all as an audience as well, cisgendered, heterosexual audience would know more about trans victims as well. Yeah, I I think you brought a lot of really, really good points. And I correct me if I'm wrong, but in 2009, when that case happened, oh, the Obama administration was in office, right? Yes, that is correct. And that was a huge, huge turning point and tipping point for the transgender community as well, because he was one of the, he was the first president to be openly affirming of the LGBTQ community, including the transgender community. And so that definitely played a role federally um, with the hate crime laws that began to get put into place. And so that that case definitely was one of the first cases during his administration um, especially LGBTQ case that really where he was able to speak up 
and be vocal. And he did. And he, I mean, he was very respectful of Angie's case as well. And so that's why I was like, if we could see more news outlets cover cases in that same format, like they did with Angie Zapata's case and Mercedes Williamson's case. And, and there are a couple of other cases too. Like I even covered a transgender guy, Felicia, named Yvonne Young, and um, that, and they were very gender affirming in that case as well. And so, you know, there are there are news outlets that are affirming, but like I said, unfortunately, a lot of them are still not. And so that's where the audience doesn't really get to know about trans victims because they're they're only seeing and hearing about them labeled as queer men or queer women who dressed up, and 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 they were to blame for their own death. So because they didn't disclose, so then people just lose interest. But if we really tell, like I said, again, if we tell it in a, in a way of the victim and who they are, which is what I do in a hateful homicide, again, I'm hoping to see an increase in interest of, of these type of crimes and awareness. No, absolutely. I really do think that we like undermine how much the media influences our perception and our society. And granted, Canadian media is one thing but american news sources are another (laughs) um i really think that when we're really looking at media sources um especially as like we become young adults or you know the listeners become young adults we really have to be critical of the rhetoric that those sources are pushing because like everyone's got an agenda and i really think that the way we cover these these sorts of situations are so it's so impactful, but it's so subconscious that we don't even recognize it. Um, Oh, absolutely. And I even think like the notion of a hate crime is like still something that's very, very new. Um, Mm -hmm. But I guess I would say maybe very, very new for like cisgendered folks, um, but very, very old for folks in the queer community. Um, Absolutely. Which is like, it's just, there's such a, there's such a divide and it's, it's so hard because we need to have everyone kind of on board um, to really get this, just this information out there. So people understand that, that trans folks are disproportionately affected by hate crimes, but yeah, it's really, really interesting kind of your your understanding of the way the media presents these stories and obviously victim blaming is like I feel like it's everywhere at this point like we could blame anyone for like you could get hit by a car and be blamed for it like it's just like oh yeah if the media wants to tell you something they'll they'll get it out there but now we're kind of bringing race into the conversation because I know that black trans women are the most affected by hate crimes because not only do they have that intersection of you know being trans but they also have the intersection of race that is a big 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 thing that people are still still learning about still being ignorant to still perpetuating or upholding white supremacy so how do you think that this rhetoric affects like trans people who are a POC so black Indian indigenous that's another one yes 
Yes, that, you know, those cases, again, are very, very rarely covered. Um, I have seen a couple of actual mainstream American um, media outlets, and, and I think they also partner with Canada as well. Um, and it was, it's a show called um, Fatal Attraction. It's a more Afrocentric true crime um, syndicated show. And they cover, you know, um, minority community um, true crime cases. And so every now and then I will see a case that mentions um, a Black trans woman or, a, you know, a trans Latina individual. And I always be like, yes, they're covering our community. And that's great. And I wish we would see more of that everywhere else, because if we could see that on Dateline, if we could see that on 48 Hours or 2020, the same way that George Floyd and the same way that Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey, the same way that all of these um, cisgendered, um, Black-identified individuals who have lost their lives due to hate as well for just being Black, why is it that trans individuals cannot receive the same sympathy, especially Black trans women, and even brown and indigenous trans women, why can't we not receive that same empathy? Why can't we receive that same protesting like this 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 can because right and even if you look at if you if you follow a lot of the American like commercials and things like that, while they have become very pro-black, and I'm all for that being an Afro-Caribbean, like I'm I'm black and I love my black community. But even if you still de delve into that as well, it's unfortunate because a lot of these advertisements have been very Black, cis, hetero covered. And while that is great as well for visibility for our community as Black people, I still would love to see a Black trans woman pulled into a commercial. I would love to see a trans Latina individual, an, an Indigenous trans individual. I would love to see us all pulled into more visible spaces since people are now starting to create those platforms for minorities of the cis experience. But now we need to also create that platform and visibility for minorities of the trans experience as well. We need to get out there and protest for um, trans individuals who are being murdered the same way we would if a Black you know, cis guy was shot by a cop. We need to take that just as that serious because no, like you said, no one should be blamed for losing their life, you know? And like you said, it's just sad that that's what's come to in this society. But one of the things that my goal is to do is to stop that. And that's what, it, and I'm combating that with a hateful homicide, uh, combating that negativity spin that has been put on um, trans individuals, especially black trans women or brown and indigenous trans women. I'm spinning that and I'm showing you like, no, like in these cases, Felicia, like the recent one um, that released last Saturday, the murder of Kelly Stowe, beautiful black trans woman. Um, she was murdered in 2018 in Detroit, Michigan. So not too far from the Canadian border. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so she was not too far from you all. So I know she had familiarity with that cold weather, but um, <sighs> nonetheless, the case really talked about, she was a sex worker, but I also talked about the fact that she was an aspiring fashion designer, that she too was an advocate, that she had spoke up for a, a case in 2015. And, um, and, and that was really important for me to highlight, not that she was just 
a, a black trans woman who was a sex worker and she, you know, and a John just went crazy. No, this was not the case. And that is not the case for every black or brown or indigenous trans individual. We are not all sex workers and all of our cases do not involve sex work. And while there's nothing wrong with sex work, because I'm a huge sex work proponent and advocate, at the same time, I don't want people to always feel like that that is the stigma of Black and Brown and Indigenous trans women or trans femme individuals. That is not what I want to be taken away from, from any message. And I want individuals to understand that these, that these people, myself included, that we are daughters, we are sisters, we are granddaughters, we are business leaders, you know, so we, we have a role in our communities as well. We're not just you know, working 12 to six and, you know, and that's our, the, the extent of our lives. And that's what I want to be able to tell in the hateful homicide is that these victims have a voice and more to their story. No, absolutely. And I think it's really funny too, when we talk about sex workers, it's like when, when an accountant is murdered, that is not the headline. Like Mm-mm. they don't say, oh, you know, he was an accountant and he was, you know, so boring that he was murdered like mm. it just like it's not it's not the narrative at all and it's so sex negative um mm-hmm. and it also fails to recognize and I think that's kind of what you were kind of getting on is just like granted there are a large amount of black and brown women in sex work but that is a reflection of the systems that black and brown mm-hmm. women have to face um like throughout their lives which in turn sometimes pushes them into sex work and granted there's nothing wrong with sex work there's an industry for sex work um mm-hmm. but for a black and brown woman to get into post secondary school or even just to talk about poverty in general like a very basic thing that we all learn about in elementary school you know it's not it mm-hmm. it's not an easy an easy trajectory you never know if people grew up in um violent homes or like what their situation was like so it's very like I don't know it's very it's just very like surface level I find that this is like the rhetoric that we're pushing and I kind of wanted to ask you because over the last year yes anything my (laughs) friend well we've we've seen a lot of push for Black Lives Matter. And I think that this happens kind of, and this is something that I'm pretty cognizant of when I, you know, recognize that I identify with like a feminist perspective, is that there are still divisions amongst those advocacy groups. I know that, Mm -hmm. you know, as a white woman, I have to recognize that if I don't advocate for all women, I don't want to identify with the term feminist. And Mm -hmm. that's something that not everybody who identifies with feminism is for, unfortunately. And and that's not the true definition of feminism, but, you know, people are going to screw things up. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what, why do you think there's such a divide or maybe not a divide, but there's just like a priority list within these kind of like, okay, we're going to advocate like we're going to advocate for black folks, but we're only going to advocate for black cis, cis folks. And then eventually we'll mm-hmm. advocate for black queer folks. And then eventually mm-hmm. we'll advocate for black trans folks. Like why is there a pyramid scheme and how do we 
as a collective start putting the most marginalized folks at the forefront while not because granted like you said this and I obviously believe this as well like all of the BLM stuff needed to happen and a hundred percent it was we still have so 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 much work to do but we can't be leaving our trans brothers and sisters behind you know what I mean Mm -hmm. so like oh I know exactly what you mean how do we bridge this gap and like why do you think it's still so hard for people to get on board I guess well you know the biggest reason always is going to be religion Mm. um you're always going to have and this is no matter what race you are you're going to those religions racially within those religions are always going to have some component of anti, you know, it's going to be very homophobic. It's going to be very transphobic. It's going to be very biphobic. So there's a lot of religious rhetoric already that we've been, you know, conceptualized as a construct for so long that that's how people see. So when you have individuals or victims like trans individuals who go outside of that religious spectrum of the normality of what is considered the, the normal you're going to see a lot of pushback. You're going to see a lot of like, well, they're black, but they're not really like, but that's like a different, that's like a gay thing. And that's kind of like how people who don't understand like the importance of unity and community, that's the ideology that they keep because they're looking at it as well. You know what? They're, they're a sinner because race and gender, that's two different things. Like you can't, I didn't, I, I'm not changing my race but you're changing your sex, you're changing your gender, and people cannot handle that. And even still recently, we are just now getting to a place where, if you really look at it, where even homosexuality has become accepted and much more mainstream than it has been probably within the past 10 years. Because I'm telling my age as a 31-year-old Black trans woman, which for statistics-wise, typically around the age of 35 is how long a BIPOC trans individual has, especially of the feminine experience. And so, you know, to be at 31, and I remember shows like Dawson's Creek in the late 90s. I remember being a a young kid and watching that. I remember like little hints of like homosexuality and now to see it being such so broad. And and that's what I want to see for the trans community as well. And what we have to do is have transgender empathy. And I do that as well, my friend. I provide transgender empathy trainings. And that's another form of raising awareness. Because while the podcast is going to give you an understanding of trans victims, I still need you to understand transgender concepts as a whole, and what that looks like socially, medically, Um, and in between. And so that's where my trainings come in at. And if we start to see more things like that in workspaces, school spaces, you know, this is going to be, again, an increase in people caring about trans victims. And that's what I would love to see in our cis, Black, and Brown communities to support their trans, Black, and Brown community members and family members, because it's important. Yeah, I think... You said something really, like, interesting and something that, like, a lot of folks don't really understand, but you mentioned that um, POCs that are trans, typically from them presenting, have only until 35. That's kind of, like, the lifespan. And 
or at least the statistic right now, like everything's a statistic. So nothing is concrete, but how, how does that kind of like make you feel as a trans person and doing this advocacy work that you shouldn't have to do um, Mm. as you kind of get to that, like, you know, statistic, I guess. Well, you know, it is very heartbreaking. Um, I'm currently working on a song and the song is called, I want to live long like Cicely Tyson. Mm-hmm. Um, the song, um, Cicely Tyson was an African-American actress, um, very well known in the U S and Europe. And she just recently died, um, at the age of 96, um, earlier this year. And the reason why I'm working on that song in a, in a video to that, as well as another way of raising awareness is because so many times that statistic, like I said, if black and brown trans women are only living to 35 and none of us have ever seen 96, then what I want to do is start inspiring my trans women, my trans femme of the BIPOC experience to say, we want to live long too. 35 is not a long life. So we want to live long, just as long like as any other cis, you know, cishet woman, cis woman, we want to have that same privilege too. And that's where my message from my, uh, my song, uh, I want to live long like Cicely Tyson. Um, that's where that inspiration is coming from, from that um, statistic of the age of 35. It is very disheartening to know that, you know, technically I could only have between now and four years to live. You know, that is a very scary reality. Um, I do recognize a privilege within myself of having a kind of what's called a passing privilege within our community, which means that I can kind of blend in um, to like this this hetero community without, you know, arousing suspicion. Um, And so I think that has played a pivotal role in my survival. Um, But then at the same time, I know as I continue to become more well-known and um, more visible in the LA community and now even other parts of the U.S., my friend, and now Canada, you know, obviously people are going to know I'm trans and seeing my face. So, you know, there's always that like, well, what if, you know, someone, you know, but at the same time, I know like so many other activists and advocates who have stood before me and before me, my ancestors like Martin Luther King and so many others who have lost their lives for fighting for justice. I know that this is for the greater good. And if it's, if I started and someone else finishes it, that's great too, you know? And, um, and I know like my, my, my legacy mother, I call her, um, you may have heard of her. She's really big in the queer community, Marsha P. Johnson. Though I didn't know her, um, I just feel like, you know, she too was a leader and an activist who lost her life. But at the same time, look at her now, look at the communities, you know, our community, fighting and protesting and, and and for those who do care about trans lives and so there is a growth and so even if I was to god forbid lose my life you know at least I would know that I've started something that I, would, I, I, I know will continue for the better. I really love that. Um, I really really appreciate you coming on the podcast today and being so open and resourceful and just super educated on kind of what you're talking about. I'm really, really excited to keep listening to The Hateful Homicide. Um, Do you have any resources or places where people can find you and find your podcast if they want to go take a listen to 
the next episode or some of the episodes that you mentioned earlier? Absolutely. So you can find us. We are on Spotify. You can type in a, a hateful homicide on Spotify. You can also find us if you download the podcast app on Apple Store and type in a hateful homicide. It also gives you like weekly reminders because I release each episode every week. And you can also follow us on IG at a hateful homicide. And that's spelled A H A T E F U L homicide. And you can follow me at Mallory Jenna 90. And that's M-A-L-L-E-R-Y-J-E-N-N-A-90. And so I am so excited. And just please, you know, take a listen. Um, I'm all here for if you all even have recommended or suggested episodes. I love getting community feedback because I want to make sure that I tell every story the right way. And again, Felicia, thank you so much for this opportunity of being able to talk about a hateful homicide. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciated it. You're welcome, my friend. Anytime. (laughs) If you want to hear more episodes like this or learn more about Mallory, we'll have all of her information in our podcast bio. Make sure to subscribe to the Ladies Let's Talk About Sex podcast for more episodes like this. Thanks for listening.